Hey guys, I just thank you for uh, hanging with me this semester and being part of this. Um, the plan, I, I think we're going to start back up somewhere around August again. Um, the plan as of tonight is that uh, I, I'll be coming back to do that at that point. I can't, I'm not, well, thank you. Um, I'm not swearing to it. I'm just telling you the plan is that I'm coming back at that point. Um, life, life can do funny things over, you know, in prayer time, but the plan right now is that I'm doing that and I'm trying to work on my schedule to make sure that my schedule is reasonable and that I can, that I can do that. So, but that is the plan as we sit here. Hey, uh, this is the feedback that I got from last week. So I, I, I'm, I'm planning to give you some options tonight and we're going to take a vote on where you want to go tonight. It's your night. It's the last night we're finishing up. So here's what I kind of heard. You can tell me if it's accurate or not. Um, and then I, I'm going to give you a chance to vote on, on one of several options of where we can go. Uh, my understanding was is that we came last week. We had a lot of questions about spiritual gifts and a lot of questions about tongues. And that probably a significant amount of the time spent last time was covering that issue. Okay? And so we really didn't necessarily get chapter 13 covered. Does that sound right? Okay. So here are the options that I'm going to give you in a moment. You can raise your hands and you can vote for more than one. I just want to get a take on if we talk about that, I'd be okay talking about that. So I can do this. Uh, I was actually planning in the way it was set up. I was, I, I had thought we would do 13 last week. I was actually planning to come back and talk about the gift of tongues and what I think the biblical uh, model for that is and what scripture says. So I was fully prepared to have that conversation. So if that still has interest and intrigue and there's a feeling in the room we'd like to land that conversation, I can come back and we can land that conversation together. Uh, I can do chapter 13. Uh, so I'm, I'm ready. We can go there. We can do chapter 13, which is the love chapter. It's the chapter you hear at all the weddings. You know, love is kind. Love is... Uh, uh, we can go there together. Or the other is, if you have interest, is um, last Sunday we kind of touched on the whole idea of pre-tribulational rapture. I gave three real quick reasons why I believe in a pre... There's actually a lot more scripture, a lot more reasons to believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. We could go after that tonight. So there's your three options, okay? Chapter 13, the love chapter. We want to land that discussion on tongues. We want to go back and go after that one more time. Um, We'd like to maybe talk about pre-tribulational rapture and reasons for believing that. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put those offerings out there. You can raise your hand. You can raise your hand for more than one. I just want to get a feel of the room on which we would be most interested in covering tonight. Okay? So First uh, Corinthians chapter 13, love chapter. We'd like to go after that. Okay? Uh, land the discussion on tongues. We'd like to go after that. Okay? Uh, pre-tribulational rapture. Okay. All right. Chapter 13, pre-tribulational rapture. Okay. I, I think the rapture edges it just a little bit. Are we okay with that? Yes. Okay. All right. So let's go ahead and go after that a little bit tonight. Uh, here's the, here is the general rundown for chapter 13. Okay. For those of you that are disappointed, love one another. Okay. We covered chapter 13. Um, all right, so let's go back and, and uh, actually let's start with a word of prayer and then we'll just dig in and talk a little more about uh, why I believe it's accurate for a, a pre-tribulational rapture. Dear Lord, we just ask tonight that you would be here with us. Give us the opportunity to just absolutely love your word, study your word, take your word in. And God, 
for it, uh, to be better students, to be better livers of the word. God, help us to be uh, accurate in what we talk about tonight. Help us to be willing and to consider uh, all options and, and what you've got there. But yet, God, help us get to accuracy and help us get to truth. And we ask you this in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. Okay, so if you were um, here on Sunday, um, we talked about this a little bit. I'm going to go ahead and we'll spend just a second or two kind of reviewing, and then I'll take you into a whole new slate of passages that I think uh, teach about this. So the, the first thing, one of the things we talked about on Sunday uh, was the idea of clear passages. Okay, and do we have the thing in the back? Is it working? Yes, no, maybe. Okay, probably not. All right, I'm going to try one thing really quick. And that didn't do it. Okay, uh, so let's go back to one of the passages that we looked at uh, on Sunday. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Here's what it reads. It says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, who, raised, who he raised from the dead... And then here's the phrase, guys, that I just think you have a hard time getting past if you're outside of the idea of a pre-tribulational rapture, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And here's why I think that that is just, okay, so let's put, there we go, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. As we draw a timeline out, and you and I are the church, We've been saying together that the rapture ends the church age and begins the trib. That the second coming ends the tribulation. That the second coming is the battle of Armageddon. And that the rapture is not the second coming. It is the catching away of saints. But here's the question I have when you get to passages like 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. If there is no rapture, If the church simply slips into the tribulation and that every time the Bible talks about this catching away of Christians and the second coming, if that is the same event, which is what Christians who would lean toward a post-trib view would say, then how does this passage work? What, What wrath did Christians get saved from if they actually lived through the tribulation? How does this passage become true and accurate if Christians actually live through the worst wrath, the worst tribulation that the world has ever known? How is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10 accurate? Does that make sense? So that's why I think when you get to some of these clear passages, if you're going to go with a, a post-trib view, I think you have to come back with an answer that says... Over and over again, we are told we're going to be spared from that time of trial. We're going to be spared from that time of wrath. If this is the worst wrath the world has ever known, how is that verse, how is that promise lived out if you and I have to live through it? Okay? And that's why I think those clear passages are so compelling, so powerful. The other one we shared on Sunday, uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Another one I think is just absolutely powerful. All right, so enough with that one. Let's go back 
Um, another thing that we said on Sunday, I'm not going to make you go to the passages and, and, and go there, but just to refresh our memory and to talk about it is simply this. The words that are used to describe the second coming and the words that are used to describe the rapture are so absolutely different that I don't, I don't believe you can even argue that they're talking about the same moment. By the time Scripture says that one of those events is like a thief and that one of those events, every single eye sees that event. Matter of fact, if you remember when we talked about it on Sunday, um, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus describing said, when he comes back, the nations of the world will see him coming. Remember lightning from the east to the west? And they will mourn seeing Jesus come. And a matter of fact, when you read the book of Revelation and it talks about this battle of Armageddon, here's the ironic part of it. All the nations of the world that have been fighting against each other, they literally turn their tanks. They literally steer their planes at Jesus and try to take him out. That's how angry they are about him coming back. He suddenly becomes the enemy. And the interesting thing is in scripture, it says that in that moment, you and I come back with him. And here's another interesting thing. Remember we told you on Sunday that post-trib view says that you and I go up in the air and then we come back immediately because the rapture and the second, and the second coming are the same event. But here's the interesting thing is that the Bible describes when you and I as Christians come back with Jesus at the end of the tribulation, we come back in white robes. Okay, here's why I think that's important. Because you and I come back in white robes because we've already been judged. See, we've already gone through the Bema seat. We've already received the rewards according to how we've lived. If you and I were just on the earth moments before and did the U-turn, how do we come back already adorned? I think it's a, I think it's a miscalculation. Okay? The descriptive terms, I believe, are so absolutely different. A thief does not get seen by everybody. Okay? All right. And then um, let's go to... Uh, all right, I'll give you a new one. I'll give you a new one right now. Okay? Grab your Bibles because you're going to want to see this one for yourselves. Go to the book of Revelation. Okay, I am going to bore you to death for just a second, but I am going to do that with the express purpose of making what I think is just a huge point. Okay? So go to Revelation chapter 1. Does anybody know where the tribulation starts in the book of Revelation? Anybody know? What chapter? Okay. Chapter 5. Anybody else want to throw in? I, I, I would argue for chapter 4. Okay. But I'm okay either way. I'll go with you for 5. I'll go with you for 4. Here's what you need to know. The first three chapters of the book of Revelation, guess what hasn't started yet? The tribulation. Okay? It starts at the very earliest in chapter 4. So, go with me back to chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 4. Here's what it says. John to the seven... What's the next word? Churches. Now, if you're interested, here's what I encourage you to do. Circle the word churches. Okay? It's, it's, it's going to make sense in a moment. So, if you're willing to write in your Bible, God will not curse you, I promise. 
Circle the word churches, okay? Because it's going to make sense. All right, so Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, the word churches. Go with me down now to verse 11. Here's what it says. And which said, write on a scroll that you see and send it to the seven, what's the next word? Churches, circle that. Go with me now down to verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven gold lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven, next word, circle churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches, circle churches. Go to chapter two, verse one, to the angel of the, what's the next word? Circle the word church. Okay, now jump all the way down to verse seven. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the circle the word churches. Now go down to verse eight to the angel of the church of the uh, to the angel of the next word church circle the word church. Now here's what I want to remind you. We're midway through this. What hasn't started yet? The tribulation. The tribulation is going to start in chapter four or five. Okay. So we got a lot of church going on here, right? All right, let's keep going. All right, jump with me down to verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the... Circle the word churches. To the angel... This is verse 12. To the angel of the church. Circle the word church. Now go to verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the... Churches. Circle the word churches. Verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira. Circle the word church. Go with me down to verse 23. I will strike her children dead. Then all the, what's the next word? Churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. Jump down to verse 29. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Circle the word churches. Now to chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis. All right, so we're in the third. What hasn't started yet? The tribulation. But we've got an awful lot of church going on here. Okay? Alright, just hang with me. We're gonna Alright, go with me down to verse six. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse seven, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia right. Circle the word church. Go with me down to verse thirteen. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the Churches, okay, all right, and then verse 14, uh, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, circle that. Now go with me down to verse 22. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, all right, and thus ends chapter 3. The tribulation begins where? Chapter 4. Guess what word is never used again in the book of Revelation? Do you realize that the Bible just used the word church 19 times in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation? And yet, from this moment on, it goes silent and never again mentions the word church. Until, okay, until the end when it says, be sure and deliver the book of Revelation to the churches so they can read it. But all through the tribulation period, all through the rest of the book of Revelation, guess what word is never again used? Church. Isn't that interesting? And the tribulation starts in in chapter 4. But you want to see something I think is even more interesting than that? Look at how chapter 4 starts. Chapter 4, verse 1. 
this is John. And here's what he says. After this, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven and a voice I heard speaking to me like a what? Like a what? When we read 1 Corinthians on Sunday, remember the passage that talked about the rapture? The rapture was denoted by saying, and then they heard something like a trumpet. John says, after this, I looked up before me and a door standing open in heaven and a voice that I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Isn't it interesting in the book of Revelation, the first three chapters, 19 times it talks about the church. You get to chapter four, which is the beginning of the tribulation. And John experiences something, a voice like a trumpet, and he is immediately taken from the earth into heaven. And never again is the church mentioned in the book of Revelation. Is it possible? I'm just asking. Is it possible that what happens to John in chapter four, verse one is a picture of the rapture? And that's why you and I do not see the church ever again in the book of Revelation. Let's go to another one. Okay. On Sunday, we talked about, for just a little while, we talked about this idea that the Holy Spirit is no longer here. So go with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll go ahead and start in verse 1 here. Let me read this for you again real quickly. Concerning uh, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together in Him... We ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God, or his worship, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Matter of fact, it's interesting, when you read the book of Revelation, Israel actually believes that Antichrist is Messiah. And one of the reasons they buy into him as being Messiah is because he actually restores temple worship. And they go, surely this is Messiah. Surely this is him. And the Bible says that they follow him and believe him all the way to about the midpoint of the tribulation where he does what the Bible calls the abomination of desolation. And what he does at that midway point is he actually erects an idol of himself in the temple. Now, why is that a big deal to a Jew? Ten commandments. Thou shalt not have, make unto thyself any graven images. And the moment Antichrist sets up an idol... They know he's not Messiah. And it's the moment they turn. This passage is talking about that very same moment. It says, And he will oppose himself and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. And he requires the world to bow down and worship this idol, this image of himself. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things, and now you know what is holding him, talking about Antichrist, back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. And remember we said on Sunday, right now the Holy Spirit is saying, look, no, 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 no. Because Satan would love to bring this world to an end. Satan hates humans because humans live to the glory of God when they follow Jesus Christ. And he despises that. Matter of fact, one of the reasons, do you know why we're even here? 
is because when, remember when Satan fell? Satan was in the very presence of God, looked God in the eyes and said, I don't need you. I don't want you. I will not worship you. Scripture tells us he was the covering cherub literally flying over the throne of God. And he said, look, I, I, no. Do you realize that you and I are God's argument to Satan? That God, when he created humans, said, there will be creatures who have never seen me and yet will love me. Who, who have never touched me and yet will worship me. And every time a person becomes a Christian, do you realize that you and I become God's argument to Satan to say, you had such advantage, you had such privilege, and yet you rejected me. And here are my people who have only believed in me by faith. And do you realize in some ways, we're that answer that God says, and do you see that these people love and appreciate me when you didn't? He hates us. because He hates us. He hates us. And the idea that the civilization and this world would come to an end brings him nothing but joy. And he would do it any time. So, the Holy Spirit holds him back. says, no, you will not. You will not end humanity yet. So I saw, yeah. Lynn, does um, verse 3, um, where it says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way for the, the day of the... Re- will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that the Antichrist is actually going to be on the scene before the rapture? No, I, what I think, here's the deal. This passage here is not talking specifically about the rapture. It's talking about the second coming. Okay, so that's a great question. So let's see if we can, did everyone understand the question that just came? No, I can tell. Okay, so let me see if I can explain the question and then we can get there. Um, The question was, uh, when you read the passage there, it says, Do not be easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy report or letter supposing uh, to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Okay? The day that it's talking about is the second coming. Okay? That day will not come. So if anyone comes to you and says, hey, Jesus is here. You go, no, he's not. No, he's not. He's not leaving in India with his head shaved. and He's not here. Okay? Because what we know is, is that that time of rebellion has to happen first. Antichrist will come on this. That's what he's saying in this passage. Antichrist will come on the scene first. And so until you've seen Antichrist, until you've seen the book of Revelation unfold, you know Jesus is not coming back, okay? Because he comes back at the battle of Armageddon. That's all it's saying right there. But here's the thing that's interesting. Will we know the Antichrist or will we see him? Will he be a world figure before the tribulation? Isn't that a great question? And the answer in all likelihood is probably. Probably. Because, I mean, stop and think about this. If by the middle of the tribulation, he has literally unified the world into a one world government and is in full and absolute control. So now you're talking three and a half years in. I've got to believe that somewhere here before the rapture, he's a political figure. 
that he's probably a person of recognition. And that it's actually the chaos of the rapture and the early days of the tribulation that put him into full world power out of that. Which means if you and I were living in the last days, then there's probably a political figure out there somewhere um, who would be the one that would emerge. Uh, it's not Henry Kissinger, okay? Uh, you, if you take his you know, name and backwards and add them, it's not Henry Kissinger. He's too old, okay? Um, it's not. Uh, <clears throat> but if, if we are in the end times, then chances are there is a world figure out there who's going to become that unifying world figure. Okay, so question. Um, it's not really a question so much as a comment. Okay. Um, when you were saying that we were created in response to the devil rejecting God, I mean, it makes me feel like, like I hope it's not blasphemous. It's like a little petty, it seems. If I mean, if that's the sole reason, because I always thought it was for his glory, not in response to Satan rejecting him. And I don't, it doesn't mm-hmm. seem like a God thing to do. Yeah. Like, why would he even waste his time making us to say, oh, you made a really big mistake if he doesn't need Satan's approval in the first place? Right. And I, 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 think, I think potentially you're thinking about that maybe wrong because I don't, I don't think it's about God being petty because I agree with you. I, God's not going to play petty games and it's not, it's not one upsmanship going on with God. <clears throat> there are, huh? Okay. Well, um, do you have any, I guess, evidence that would support your idea that I'm wrong? Like, I'm not saying that I, I don't want to be right about it at all. Right. Um, but where would you find that? Like, is it just because you know the character of God that you would assume he wouldn't do anything like that? That he would not do anything like that? That he wouldn't be, like, one-upmanship, I suppose. That he would not do um, one-upmanship? Yes. Well, I guess the only, you know, when you, t- when you talk about God and talk about the fact that he's perfect and holy in all things, when you start talking about one-upsmanship, that sounds pretty petty to me when you get into that type of stuff. That becomes, that becomes pretty, I think, self-aggrandizing in that moment. God can't ask you and me not to do that, and then he do it himself. Does that make See, sense? It makes sense. I, I think I'm... Picking your words apart is probably what I ended up doing. Um, so I, I agree with you. I just, maybe the wording triggered that response in me. I yeah. don't know. I don't have anything else. <laughs> yeah. At the end of the day, you and I were created for the glory of God. And all I'm suggesting is that a part of that glory of God is that you and I give an amazingly profound answer to Satan. Maybe this helps. Maybe it won't help. If you found a young lady and she's married to a man who spends his entire life saying to that young lady, you are worthless. You are scum. You, you are not worth anything. And they eventually end up in a divorce. He goes off and lives a life of chaos, lives a life of just absolute misery. She ends up meeting an amazing man who loves her with all of his heart and every day tells her how precious she is. Isn't that man an answer to what the first husband said? In some ways. So, that doesn't help. Sort of? Okay. All right. It would be for me. Okay. Yeah.
where in the in Revelation does it say that it's going to be a seven year tribulation? It's yeah, and I think in Revelation I'm trying to remember. I'm thinking it's chapter six, but you, you're going to have to go look with me that it actually gives the number of days that uh, that the revelation the revelation is that that period is going to be, and it does come out to seven years. Uh, what we just said over here is accurate also because um, when you read the book of Daniel, Daniel has 69 weeks of years. Okay, it's interesting because Daniel says. There'll be 69 weeks of years and then one more week. Are you familiar with the passage at all? No? Okay. So you'll want to go there and look at it. It's, great. it's a great passage. Matter of fact, real quickly, I think I can tell you. No, I can't. Anyways, uh, Daniel 69 weeks plus one, then one more week, so 70 weeks of years. What it says in Daniel that's really intriguing is it says, From the time of going into captivity until Messiah is cut off will be 69 weeks of years. When you take the children of Israel going into the Babylonian captivity and count 69 weeks of years, you literally come to Palm Sunday when Jesus presents himself as Messiah. Okay? So, it, I mean, it, it's just unbelievable. But 69 weeks of years. Those 69 weeks have happened. Guess what's still left? What we call Daniel's 70th week. One more week of years. And this is one thing that I would say back again to the pre-trib, post-trib argument. That week of years is not for the church. It's for Israel. Israel was promised the 70th week. And when you read the book of Revelation, although it never mentions the church, guess what it talks about throughout the tribulation? Antichrist getting mad at Israel, coming at war against Israel, Israel fleeing into the desert. Never talks about the church, but all of the book of tribulation deals, or Revelation deals with Israel in Daniel's 70th week. Okay? So we know from Daniel it's a week of years, but I believe, and I, I may be off, but I think it's Revelation 6, maybe 9, where it talks about the period of time that will be for the... Daniel 9. Okay, that was my second guess. Thank you. All right, so Daniel 9 where? 24. Oh, you're saying Daniel 9, 24, not Revelation. Did we find it in Revelation at all? Revelation 13, 5. You guys are good. Okay, so let's go to Revelation 13, 5 first and see what that one says. It's also in 12, 6. He says 1,260 days, which is equal to 42 months, which is equal to three and a half years. Yeah, which is the midpoint. It's the halfway point. And then we had, uh, yeah, okay, so in Revelation chapter 13, it says, The beast will be given uh, a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and exercise his authority for 42 months, okay, which he gets that at the, for the second three and a half years. We've already, by the time Revelation chapter 13 happens, three and a half years have already occurred, and then he gets that authority and is allowed to do that. Is that right? 11-2. Yeah, but, but the exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample it on the holy city for 42 months. Yeah, and I will give my power to two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. Okay? And all of that stuff, just so you know, is happening at three and a half years into the book of Revelation.
Um, excuse me. Uh, yeah. There's this question that has been bothering my mind. Um, last Sunday you said that uh, the coming of Jesus will, uh, will be like uh, a thief. And by then people will be saying, peace be upon us. Is that a clue that Jesus was giving us? Because like now, um, uh, two weeks ago, tremendous stuff has happened with Osama bin Laden being killed and people thinking now there'll be peace, it will be okay, everything is fine. Was Jesus like kind of giving us a clue? Because it says that he'll come like a thief and people will be saying, peace is upon us. I don't know. And here's what I would answer to that. Yes, because I believe scripture is completely accurate in there. There is at least probably going to be a sense going on in the world that, remember it says there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, there's going to be earthquakes, but somehow in the midst of that, so whether all of a sudden there becomes a short season where everything just all of a sudden seems a little bit better, you know, maybe they sign a peace treaty about that time that maybe is, you know, so what if, what if tomorrow, stop and think about this, what if tomorrow we signed a peace treaty in the Middle East with the Arabs to say you're not going to attack Israel? Wouldn't everybody be going, oh my goodness, this is something we haven't been able to do for how many years? So there's going to be something that causes them momentarily to say, we think we just turned a corner and everything, despite all the wars, despite all the earthquakes, we think we just got to the right side of this. And in the very moment they think we got to the right side of this, here comes the thief. Okay, so I think we got it back there. Hey, Pastor Lynn, there's a uh, third theory on the rapture that I don't think we've talked about in the mid-tribulation rapture. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, could you speak to that a little bit? Some of the verses you mentioned early on kind of support that too, versus it's because it's a separate event from the second coming at the end of the tribulation. Right. Here's, here's the only reason I haven't really gone there, and, and I don't want to offend anybody too badly or make it too mad. There aren't, there, there aren't enough verses that seem to go mid-trib that probably within theological circles today, you have a really, really hard time finding very many theologians today who will go after a mid-trib theory uh, for, the, for the rapture. Um, it, it's something that was fairly popular 30, 40 years ago, um, but pretty much it's, the conversation has gotten into the two conversations because it, it just, it, as you line up the verses, it just doesn't make sense for a mid-trib conversation on the deal yep um what verses do they use to support a post-tribulation rapture okay. and how that's, do a, we... that's a great question so i'll tell you what let's do let's keep going just a little bit if we get that far i'll go right back and we'll go look at where you would get the post-trib from okay mine actually might relate with her um that last question because my question is if we aren't here for any part of the tribulation who's left to tell people about jesus that's a great question okay so here was the question. What, where are we at on time? So I'll know how fast I got to go. Eight minutes. Okay, so I'm going to start going really, really fast. All right. So, so here's, here's the thing. If we're not here, who tells the people about Jesus? That's a great question. So here's what's going to happen. When the rapture happens, okay, rapture happens here. Anybody in this room told their friends about Jesus that they didn't believe yet? Okay. Anybody, anybody think they have relatives or friends who have heard a little bit maybe about this, the coming of Jesus Christ and the rapture? Okay, so here's the deal. If you're a person who's heard about Jesus, you've got a friend, you've got a relative, you've got a neighbor, and they've been telling you about Jesus, but you're going, oh, that's a bunch of blah, blah, blah. And then the rapture happens, 
I got a feeling you're going to be a Christian really, really quick. Okay? That you're going to go, okay, I, I, they're all saying aliens. I know what this was. Because here's what you do. You go, my sister who was a Christian has gone. My brother who was a Christian has gone. I'm not a Christian. I'm here. We were in the same house. You know, so, so people who have any familiarity, with, I, I just, matter of fact, here's the thing that's interesting. Scores and scores and scores of people during uh, the tribulation are to become Christians. I think we have this idea that the tribulation is godless and scores of people become Christians. Matter of fact, when you read Revelation chapter 13, John says to the angel, who are those underneath the throne? And the angel says back to John, those are martyrs. Those are those who've been killed during the tribulation because of their faith in Jesus. And then John goes on to say, and you could not number them. So the downside is thousands upon thousands will believe, but they will pay for it with their lives. So my, here's what, when the rapture happens, people who've heard are suddenly going to convert. The other thing that happens is that 144,000 prophets are raised up out of Israel who, who apparently have heard the story of Jesus and they realize what's happened and they are immediately raised up and for the entirety of the tribulation go around spreading the gospel of Jesus primarily to the house of Israel and calling the house of Israel back to God. Okay, so there's going to be a lot of conversion during the tribulation. The problem is the guy who's in world power, the Antichrist, is going to despise Christians. And, and in the very same way that during the Holocaust, the Nazis went after the Jews, he is going to go after Christians and Israel. He's going to blame every problem that's going on in the world on them. And they will be slaughtered and slaughtered and slaughtered for their faith. Yeah. I was wondering... If we go and are descended to heaven for us that are Christians, why do we have to come back? <laughs> why do we have to come back? Yes. Um, you and I are actually going to come back with Christ in judgment. Okay? And this may sound a little bit weird. But in that moment, remember we said in, when the second coming happens, uh, they'll be fighting the battle of Armageddon. Matter of fact, the, there's a valley right there in Israel. If you go to it's called the Valley of Medigo, which we know is the valley where Armageddon will be fought. And you can stand there. And the scripture says when they begin to do that battle, when all the armies will be converging, because what's going to happen is at the very end of the tribulation, the world begins fed up with Antichrist too. And so literally it's the Antichrist armies fighting everybody and it's in the valley of Medigo. And the Bible says the blood from that slaughter will be so deep it'll be to the bits of a horse's reins. That's how much blood, I mean, to just be filling. And that's how bloody that battle is. In the middle of that battle, the potentially World War III, but in the middle of that battle, that's when Jesus comes back. He says, okay, we're done. We're done with the seven years. You and I come with him in judgment. And every person who has spent that seven years refusing Jesus Christ, refusing to turn to God, because here's, here's what you got to get about the tribulation. The tribulation is a spanking. The tribulation is seven years of God putting the world over his knee and saying, are you done fighting me yet? Will you believe now? Okay? So as the stars are falling from heaven, as the earthquakes, it is all a spanking of God saying, are you done fighting me yet? At the end here, at the, at the second coming, Jesus comes back. When he comes back, every person who has denied him and fought him the whole way is killed. 
you and I come back with him in that judgment. So you and I are part of that coming back. Okay, so hand was up again. Go real quick. We're running out of time. So do her real quick because maybe it's a follow-up. Or she's just mad that we're killing people. But Sorry. No, okay. and also I just had another quick question. Will the earth completely be done? Okay, so here's the, here's the quick question out of that. And it's a good quick question because it actually proves another one of our points. Anybody, who knows what happens right after the second coming of Jesus? Thousand year reign. We call it the millennium. And all millennium means it's just Latin. Milli meaning thousand, annium meaning years. Thousand year reign of Christ. So here's the deal. For a thousand years, the world goes on. Okay. And Jesus, though, reigns on the earth. Okay. For a thousand years. Here's the cool part. You and I, because we already have our new bodies, we get to go between heaven and earth, back and forth, okay? Because we're already completely transformed, completely, okay? But there are people still living on the earth, still having babies, still living in towns, all during that thousand years. Okay, so now we're back. You ready? Okay. So here's the question, okay? So think this through. This is a logic question, so you've got to follow my reasoning here because if you can follow my reasoning, it all of a sudden brings you around and goes, oh, my goodness, you can't do post-trip. Okay? You ready? Okay, here we go. If, G- if, if there is no rapture at the beginning of the tribulation and Jesus takes all the Christians out of the world post-trib, right? The rapture happens at the end. We all go to heaven. We all get the glorified bodies. Remember, we all come back in the white robes in judgment. You ready? So we're all changed. You following so far? Then who's left on the earth? All the non-believers. What happens to all the non-believers at the time of judgment? They're all killed. If that were the case, who would be the people living on the earth? No, because we're already glorified. We're not having babies. Remember, Jesus said, when you get to heaven, there is no marriage or giving in marriage. So if you and I have already gone and been glorified, we've got our new bodies, we've already been judged. It can't be us. But wait a minute, those who came to Christ during the tribulation, if it's post-trib, got raptured at the end. Remember, post-tribbers say the rapture and the second coming are the same thing. And the answer is, if you're post-trib, there's nobody to live on the earth during the millennium. There's no one here to live on the earth. All the Christians are gone, and all the non-believers are killed. But, go with me this way, if the rapture happens here, all of us are gone. What did we say happened during the tribulation? A whole bunch of people become Christians. They get killed for being Christians, but there's Christians on the earth. When Jesus comes back, who dies? Unbelievers. Guess who doesn't die? Believers who've endured to the end. Guess who would live on the earth during the millennium? Tribulation believers. It doesn't make sense if you have a post-tribulational rapture. It can't work. It's a good question. Thank you. You set me up. Okay. I think that was it. We're out of time, right? Yeah. Okay, all right. So give me the last question. What was the last question? It'll probably stump me and then we'll go home. All right. If the Holy Spirit has been removed from earth yes. during the rapture, yes. 
what happens to those who become believers during the tribulation period? Does the spirit dwell in them? Do they feel the spirit of God in that? How does that work? Isn't that a great question? So here, that, that may be a good way to end. If the Holy Spirit gets removed from the earth, remember we said, the passage we were just looking at in Second Thessalonians said, look, the only way Antichrist can get revealed is if the Holy Spirit gets taken out of the way. The argument was, the Holy Spirit can't leave if Christians don't leave because the Holy Spirit's in us. What does it mean to be a Christian in the tribulation then? Do you get the Holy Spirit? And here's the answer. No. No. It will revert back to the Old Testament type. Remember in the Old Testament, they didn't have the Spirit. It was a very rare occasion that somebody had the Spirit. I would assume the 144,000 might, but the average person during the tribulation does not have all the help that you and I have. So stop and think about what it would be like to be a Christ follower and not have the assistance of the Holy Spirit in the worst time ever in the history of the world. That's bad. It's just bad. Okay? But no, the Spirit's not here. You don't have one mention of the Holy Spirit indwelling people during the tribulation period. Because the Holy Spirit... Matter of fact, remember, remember when Jesus leaves the earth, he says, I'm going to send you a comforter. It's the first time the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. When the church leaves, the Holy Spirit leaves with us. They'll be like Old Testament saints. Yeah, great question. It's interesting stuff, isn't it, guys? And the fun part is we get to heaven, we get to watch most. You know, it all unfold. It'll be a pretty cool time on the deal. And the good part is, and I'm pretty, 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 pretty darn sure, guys, even if Jesus came back in the rapture tomorrow, you and I, you and I don't have to go through that, okay? Um, I'm pretty, 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 pretty darn sure, okay? Um, you know what? Let me, all right, let me, let me give you one last one that I'm going to, I'm going to challenge you to go home and do the rest of the research on, because we didn't get a chance to say it. Here's the last one. Jesus said this. Jesus said at the end times, it will be like the times of Noah and the times of Lot. Anybody remember that passage? Okay. So here's what I just want to give you to think about as you go home. Remember the story of Lot. I'll, I'll talk to anybody who wants to about Noah. You can stay. But remember Lot. Lot is living in Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember that? And God says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember the story? Okay. I'm going to argue Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed, kind of a tribulation thing. All right. So God says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. What does God do before he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah? He sends two angels. Remember the city wanted to do really weird things to him? Remember that part? Sends two angels to do what? To get Lot out of the city. Matter of fact, do you remember when Lot was hesitating? The two angels said to him, Lot, stop hesitating. Get out of the city. And you ready for this? Because we can't do anything while you're still here. Just like it was in the times of Noah and Lot, will it be at the end of the age? And I believe that Lot is a picture of believers, okay? And, and, and the whole story is a picture of God saying, when judgment comes, when I get ready to do this, I will get my believers out of the city because I cannot do anything. I cannot bring this punishment while you're still here, okay? I think it's an incredibly powerful passage to a pre-tribulational rapture, okay? All right, let's have a word of prayer. Thank you guys for a great semester. Whew. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, let's pray. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for a people who are hungry to study Scripture, are hungry for your word. God, I just, I just can't even say how proud I am as a pastor uh, that our people are willing to come out another night 
and uh, spend time in, in your word. And I know you are too, Lord. And God, I'm just going to ask that you would bless them for having taken the time to do this this semester. Help us uh, to rally and be back again uh, next semester studying your word together. And God, maybe even that even more of our church would come out. And God, we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.